Amen. I need to add to that. There was, um, wanted to let you guys know that uh, Eric Russ, our visionary pastor, he is uh, out of town leading uh, an Athletes in Action weekend um, retreat. And so they are in the Cincinnati area uh, and say, wanted us to let you guys know that they miss you, love you, and uh, we'll be back this week. So uh, as you don't see them, uh, please keep them in your prayers as they uh, still will have some, uh, some traveling to do uh, to come back to us. Probably should get the clicker, huh? Could you hook me up, Dean? So family, um, we're, we're going to be going, looking into the book of Genesis. And if you don't have a Bible and would like one, could you please raise your hand? Our crew will bring around a Bible to you. Um, as we go through the book of Genesis or go through the 37th chapter today, um, I want you to kind of do things a little differently. Um, do what the text asks, what it asks of you. And it's that you don't put yourself right into a character. You allow the narrative to unfold. You ask yourself, what does this mean about God? And then begin to think of some life application at the end. But if you start right away, it's kind of like you're opening up a, a, a movie and then seeing like the first five minutes and thinking that you know the ending. You've got to let the narration play out a little bit. So I ask that you let that happen today. Um, so we got a, a, a little handsome young man there, and I uh, like to think that when I was a little kid, I was handsome. Um, I was um, I was a young kid in school, probably like the fourth grade, and. I was kicking it with one of my homies. And so the teacher is teaching, but we began to write some letters. And these letters were like totally inappropriate. We're like talking about girls and then what we're gonna do with money. And it was just, it was just bad. And the teacher notices us, comes and gets the letter and begins to read it. And she says, okay, we're gonna go to the office. I'm gonna call your mom. And so the teacher calls my mom, and my mom says this phrase that, like, always strikes the fear of God in me. And it's, you're going to get it when you get home. Man, it's only like 10 a.m., y'all. I got the whole day to go crazy about what mom is going to do before I get home. So, you know, my mind begins to, begins to... My mind's going crazy, y'all. I'm just saying, I'm, I'm thinking the worst here. And, and, and it, it, it's that process of imagining, like, what she will do that's, that's almost more torturous than the ending outcome. You know, like, okay, maybe if I walk in the door and I, I clean up the dishes right away, she'll just give me a hug and say, that's all right. Or maybe when I walk in the door, she'll catch me with an elbow before I say I'm sorry. Like, I don't know. All I know is my mind is like going crazy as to how this is going to play out. How will this play out? Today, as we go into the book of Genesis, the, the 37th chapter, there's a scenario that's set up that as you're reading this, you've got to start by saying, man, how is this story going to play out. 
Will you please turn to the 37th chapter with me? How is this going to play out? I've got to give you some background so that you can know what you're looking for, what you're hoping for, what you're expecting to know how it's going to play out. You see, God tells Abraham, hey, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you, Abraham. I'll make your name great in the 12th chapter of Genesis. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth are going to be blessed through you, Abraham. Okay, great, God. Then the Lord says in 15, 13 through 16, then the Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. So now we've got God going to bless Abraham and use him to be a light to all nations. But there's going to be this 400-year period of the descendants being strangers in a country not their own. So... There, there's a tension here because already they're like, cool, we're going to have some great blessing. But 400 years of being outcasts, of being foreigners, of being strangers, when is that going down? Like, I want, I want, a, I want the blessing, but when is the punishment going to happen? And so in Genesis 15, verse 18, he says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. To your descendants, I will give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. So I'm setting it all up for you guys. You got a blessing, but then you also have this 400 years coming as well. And we're going to be we've seen a shift happen from Abraham being God's man to Isaac being God's man to Jacob. And so now as we go into chapter 37, we began to look at Joseph. But if you had to right now guess the location of that 400 years based on this verse, what might be an indication of where, what place would you guess? Egypt, okay, okay. I see how you could guess that, I see. So let us unpack Genesis 37. And please know, you can ask questions here. You can, you know, say, hey, Leon, I wasn't clear. Restate that for me. Because we want you to walk away equipped, um, ready, to, ready to be a soldier for Christ. So it reads, chapter 37. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Remember before we talked about um, Esau, his family line, just last week, how crazy that was. So now we're going to look at Jacob. He's the chosen one, right? His family line should look far different from Esau's. Let's see. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. 
and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. We see right from the outset that Joseph is a man that's a shepherd. He's just like the rest of his siblings. He's out caring for the flocks. But some drama jumps off. You see, he's with, he's with four of his brothers. He's with Bilhah and Zilpah's two sons. Each of them have two sons. He's with his four brothers. And we don't know what they did, but they do something evil. And what does is, what is Joseph go and do? Tells daddy. Now, come on, y'all. We, 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 we see he's a Bible character. You know, it's good old Joseph. But how do we tend to treat tattletales? Come on, let me hear it, somebody. How do you, teach, how do you treat a tattletale? Snitch. No love. Right? And so, already we're starting to see a little tension that might be present in this family. Then in verse 3, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other brothers or sons. Excuse me. Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his own age and he made him an ornate robe. Um, this son is, is, is Rachel's son. And you guys remember the place that, that he, that he, the, the, the way that he elevated Rachel. And so, you know, Benjamin was one of his sons, too, that came from Rachel. Um, but he elevates Joseph. And so you got this tension starting to build with a son that's, you know, somewhat viewed as a tattletale, but then also the apple of dad's eye. And you can almost imagine the way the other siblings view Joseph. And so uh, because he's the apple of dad's eye, he prepares this ornate robe and puts it on him. And if you could like pause for a second and imagine yourself there, you could almost see the family gathering and dad's like, look at it, guys. Isn't this beautiful? Isn't this gorgeous? Made it just for Joseph, my boy. Puts it on him. And you can hear the brothers like, yeah, those sleeves on that coat, boy. I can tell you what I would do with that. I'll wrap it around his neck. <laughs> hey, there's dad. Hey, dad. Mm, nice coat. You know, play it right off. Don't let dad know the, the, the hatred that's building. We don't know if it's simply, man, I wish I had the robe instead of him so I could be the man. Or if it's, man, I just wish dad loved all of us the way he loves Joseph. We don't know. Well, we do know. We do know there's a history when there's preference in the home. We've seen that. It, it didn't work well for Esau and Isaac, did it? It didn't, it didn't work well. And so now we get to see again tension in the home playing out. And, and, and the fruit of dad's favoritism, the fruit of this tattletale or this, this guy putting the evil report out there is hatred. 
And it says that they can't speak a kind word. So we don't know whether dad knows it or not. What we do know is Joseph has to, he has to recognize it to some degree. He has to come in the room and everybody leave. Before the conversation gets quiet. It's, it, that tension is building. So we only four verses in. And you get a glimpse into the tension in this family already. So let's read on. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheep rose and stood upright. Your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of this dream. Uh, because of his dream and what he said. It's, it, it's almost like you, you, you make a cut and then you just pour salt on the wound, you know? Now, we can't blame Joseph because he's not saying, he doesn't, he doesn't misrepresent God. It's not like God says, Joseph, go tell your brothers that this is my dream. He's just like, look, guys, I had this dream. Let me just tell you. I want to share it. You know, it's, it's not as if, like, he's, he's trying to say, I just want to interpret this for you guys. It's only a matter of time before you're bowing down to the man. You know, like, he doesn't, he doesn't go there. He doesn't, he just says, look, like, whether you hate me or not, I had a dream I want to share with you. But it's not received as a, as a dream for sharing. It's received as one more reminder that you're better than us. One more reminder that we will exalt you. One more reminder that someday we're going to have to bow down to you and you rule over us. Okay. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Let's read on. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream and this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the matter in mind. Sun and moon and eleven stars. The sun being his dad, the moon being his mom, and then his brothers uh, being the stars. So that's why his dad, his dad now is interpreting it and responds. But notice his dad, while responding, he's not responding with the hatred that the brothers have, but he does have an anger. He is angry, like, what, so what are you saying here, son? But he doesn't allow it simply to be dismissed because it's so far-fetched, because it's a dream. He almost ponders it kind of like, like when the angel met Mary and the angel's in there and he's like, you don't, you don't have a savior in your belly. And she's like, um, me? Well, you are an angel right in front of me. So like, I can't dismiss this fully, but that just sounds so crazy. I need to keep thinking about it. You know, like, like, let me ponder over this. And that's how dad does. Dad is like, man, you are tripping, son. 
but you might be right, you know. And so it's that type of pondering that takes place within the father. So we read on now, his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are, where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here. The man answered, I heard them say, let's go to Dotham. Now, my friends, this is a this is one that like is really interesting because that word Shechem should like instantly take us back a few chapters to when the brothers were all present and out in the field. And then the sister gets raped and the brothers say, hey, why don't you guys come on into our fold? Be like us. Go ahead and get circumcised. Be just like us. And the men of that community circumcise themselves. And then the brothers, Joseph's brothers, go and kill every man because they had just circumcised themselves, making themselves weak. That happened in Shechem. That, that, that was the hood that all that happened in, where they like basically assassinated, you know, all these men. And yet Joseph sends his family there for grazing purposes. That's one that we're all like, what? And no one really can understand why he would do that. Maybe he has a brain fart and he forgot. And he's like, oh, wait, that's the wrong place. Son, go get them. Or maybe he's been able to to reconcile things before sending out his sons. We don't know. All we know is that you don't want to send all your kids there. And you definitely don't want to send your son there alone. But we do see the essence of the role that, that Joseph is to take. And as in the beginning, when he gave an evil report of his first four brothers, again, he's now supposed to bring the word back to his dad again. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dotham, but they saw him in the distance. And before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer. They said to each other, come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and to take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. They saw him at a distance. You know, that that robe that was at one point like uh, a beautiful, um, a a beautiful gift from dad. 
now becomes a bullseye for his son. And so that's what it is, what signals to them. Wait, is. Is that Joseph? And the anger, the rage. You can almost imagine what what was it like for them being able to all be present, do life together without him. And here he comes. What is he labeled now? He's not labeled Joseph the brother. He's not labeled Joseph the, the, even Joseph the tattletale. He's viewed as Joseph the dreamer. But let's see what happens to his dreams once he's dead. They plot. They even develop a plan to, to cover all of their tracks. We'll say a ferocious animal killed him. But he's blessed to have a brother that comes and tries to rescue him. The, that, the cistern looks kind of like a cave. I mean, when I saw cistern, I thought it was a giant bottle, like a, you know, a Coke bottle, and he just slid in there. But it's really like a cave, about 15 to 20 feet deep. And basically, if you enter into this, you're either going to die of exposure because you're so cold, or you're going to die of hunger. Because there's, 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 there's no food. This was, this was used basically as a well, where they would let water over time build up, go and pull from it. So they throw him in the bottom of a 20-foot deep stone pit almost naked. And so even in the minds of the brothers who are saying, don't kill him, they're playing back and forth, not whether he will die, but whether they will kill him when he first arrives immediately or whether he's going to have a gradual death. So the brothers are like, yeah, you know what, you're right. Maybe a slow death is better. Let him feel the pain that he's caused us. But thank the Lord for, for one of his brothers, at least Reuben, that was trying to, trying to, um, trying to save his brother. But Reuben isn't really seen very, he's not seen as a, as a great character you want to model after. Because Reuben slept with his dad's concubine. So, at best, he's trying to love on his brother and say, you know what? I'm the firstborn. I'm under, you're under my watch. I'm going to take care of you. At worst, he's saving him to get back in good with dad. Remember when I slept with your girl? Can you overlook that? Because I saved your son. As they sat down to eat their meal. Okay, well, we need to back up. So they threw him in a cistern that was empty. Then they sit down to eat their meal. Like you just threw your brother in a, in a tomb, basically, and you just go to McDonald's like, cool, <laughs> let's roll. Like the, the heartless. They looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh. And they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. 
Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. So his brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Judah does not have whatever good intentions Reuben might have. Judah, his motivations are two things. One, that innocent blood won't be spilled. Because if you spill innocent blood, it says it, it, it cries out to be redeemed. It cries out for justice. And so he doesn't want to be the one that, that leads to his innocent brother's blood being spilled. But also, Judah's trying to come up, y'all. He wants, to make, he wants to make a profit off of this. You know, at, at least let us get something out of this. 20 shekels of silver worth your brother's life. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. Notice how they even, how they even present Joseph to dad. It's not, man, our brother got messed up, and dad, we don't know if this is Joe's stuff. It's... Is this your son? Your son, the one that you used to elevate above all of us? Your son, who you made that nice robe for? Your son, who was a tattletale and always told on everything we did? <laughs> Is this his robe? He recognized it and said, it's my son's robe. Some ferocious animal, ferocious animal has devoured him. Unfortunately, their plan works. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on a sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. This family is, is, is continuing the facade, continuing to act as if they are remorseful, continuing to, to act as if they're hurting. But what comfort could they truly provide dad when they were the, the reason that that he was mourning. This, this false sense of trying to care for dad gets rejected. But notice something. And this is the introduction into a, a, a new component of Genesis. But notice something. 
when we started our started this sermon, we talked about a promise made to Abraham. And that out of 400 years, the people would be vic- victorious, um, be used by God. But that 400 years might happen in a place called Egypt. And where is the very place that Joseph gets sent? Egypt. Egypt. And so it, it brings, it, it, you can be very dangerous if you make yourself Joseph. Like, oh man, I just don't want to be a tattletale. Or you make yourself a brother and say, oh, you know what, let us just go and be people who are quick to confess and try to live right with our brothers and siblings. Like, maybe there's some principles that you can extract that might be healthy for you. But if you stand back and you look at this story, it has to force you to ask the question of, Lord, where are you in relation to sin? Because on, if, if Joseph is your guy, he's being sinned against through this whole story. This whole story. And so, so first off, let me, let me make sure that we are all clear. God is not the, the one who uses and tries to like make sin for you or use sin to, to grow you. That is not his, his plan is not to use sin for your benefit. Although he does use it for your benefit, he would, pref- he does not want sin to be the means by which you grow. He wants holiness to be the means by which you grow. So he says in James 1, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. First John says, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. So we're starting with that premise of sin not being God's desire for using that in your life to grow you. But how does God engage with sin? So God uses, uses sin. He, he responds and engages in four ways to sin. Prevents it is one way. In Genesis 20, and he's talking here with Abimelech, he says, Then God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience. This is a sinner who's about to try to sleep with um, Sarah, with Abraham's wife. He's trying to, he's a guy that is basically living worldly and about to commit a sin with a married woman. And he says, Yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience. And so I kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. So there are times when God looks at sin and prevents things from happening. But there's also times where God permits it. In Psalms 81, verses 12 through 13, and there's a, a few other verses here, but he, but he says here, So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts. To follow their own devices. If my people would only listen to me, if Israel would only follow my ways. He's saying, okay, you keep hungering after this thing, 
you keep desiring this thing, you keep trying to do every move, every obstacle I have put in place, and you go after this sin, I'm going to let you have it. And Eric shared, like, beautifully the, the Romans passages and, and other passages last week that, that there are times where God will let you have what you want. So he prevents it at times. He permits it at times. Oh, excuse me. He directs it at times. And next, next to the cross, Joseph is probably one of the most dramatic cases of God directing sin. And as you read on, you're going to see how it seems like there is nothing good that can come out of this scenario for Joseph. I mean, from, the, from early on, outcast in the family. Beat up, stripped of his robe, thrown into a dungeon or into a, 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 a pit, and then sold by his siblings that are supposed to, be, supposed to be the ones looking out for him. It looks like nothing good can come out of this. And please know that it wasn't God's hand working sin into the brothers to make this happen. But what God does show us is that even through sinful people, he can use that to bring himself glory. And so while we think, man, this looks bad, they end up in Egypt, the place that God was going to bring them to. Now you have to ask the question, if they didn't sin, would God have brought them to Egypt? Yes, for sure. That's still, that was a part of his plan. But their sin could not, could not derail God's plan for his people. So at times, um, prevents it, he permits sin, and he directs it. And lastly, there are times when he limits sin. The Lord said to Satan in, when, in, in the book of Job, very well, then everything he has is in your power. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. He also said to Satan, very well, then he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. See, we seem to think that, that we have strength within us that gives us the ability to simply reject sin. But it seems like the Bible teaches that even with the Holy Spirit in you, God is graciously not allowing Satan to wreak havoc to the degree that he would desire to. He wants to kill you. So I'm arrogant when I think that my love for my wife is strong enough to, to stop, how do I say, Satan has a woman out there that could be so beautiful that I would cheat on my wife in a heartbeat if it wasn't for God's grace. In a heartbeat. Because God is limiting the amount, it's not beyond what you can bear. I don't get to determine that. God does. And so we, we respond with, with grace. 
But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. My brothers and sisters, I, I, I can say as a Christian, I can't speak for you. Every time I have sinned, I was given an opportunity to choose not to or given a way out. I know I'm about to say something that I shouldn't say, and then one of y'all crazy Christians call me up like, hey, Leon, uh, the one Leon, the one who loves Jesus, pastor and serving God. I just had a question for you. I'm like, why are you calling me right now? Driving my car, driving your car, knowing you're about to go do something you shouldn't. Battery goes out. You want to get a jump so you can still go get that sin. No. Opportunity. Friend calls. You even stop before you do whatever you're about to do and you say, I shouldn't be doing this. Lord, I shouldn't be doing it. Okay. Like, like God in his beautiful grace says, Not only am I going to withstand the amount of sin that you couldn't even think to bear, I'm also going to provide an out for you. Will you take it? That's how I handle sin in your life. Not because I'm focused on sin, but because I'm focused on holiness and who I want you to be. And so God God at times prevents sin. At times, he permits sin. And at times, he directs and limits sin. The danger family, and this is where I really want us to, I know we just kind of went through the, through the story and began to think about application at the end, but this is where I really want you guys to hear me. The danger is when we think we can tell God which time he's supposed to be Permit sin, prevent sin, direct sin, or limit sin. At at, at what point in this story would you have changed things? Would you have been God and said, okay, nope, Joseph's going to prevent you from falling in the cistern. Or nope, you know what, going to allow the brothers to beat you down early on in the field so you can learn your lesson. See, what we do, we can look and say, oh, I've got the full story, so now I know what happens. But what about when you don't know the full story? Because in your life, you never know the full story. In someone else's else's life, you never know the full story. But I can speak personally. I have the audacity to tell God what he should be doing sometimes. I look at someone hurting, and I'm like, God, where are you? Prevent this hurting. I'm crying. They're crying. But if I took an honest look at myself, when would I ever really want to be a a God who allows it? If I looked at myself, when would I allow you to suffer? Never. When, when, if I, if I could, I probably would take every hurtful opportunity out of your life if that were me. But that would be foolish. That would be, that would be foolish. Because it's, it's not, it's not, God did not make us to be robots. 
He made us to embrace his love, to be able to choose the beauty of his love. And when we don't, every time, whether it's pain, whether it's um, an emptiness, every time we choose not to have him, choose not to celebrate him, choose not to pursue his holiness, we're reminded of it. And he allows that reminder to happen. So that you would choose him again. And so that we can show the world that there is something better than the emptiness that seems to, to consume our minds. There is a cross. So friends, I want you to pray through submitting to God in these different arenas. And being able to celebrate him in these different arenas. I mean, I, I pray the him permitting sin would not be one where you celebrate often. That you wouldn't be a person that, that chooses sin and he lets you indulge in it. But I pray that you would, you would celebrate God during those times when you don't know what's going to happen. But yet will I trust in you, Lord. Where you don't know the outcome, but all you see is the pain and the hurting before you. Yet will I trust in you, Lord. It's going to be interesting if you haven't read this story before. You're walking in, you're getting the intro. And so I really want to invite you to stay with us and to read along to see how God plays this story out. Because if you would have intervened and prevented it on the end, on the beginning, it would have caused a lot of heartache on the end. Even more than what we see here. Will you guys pray with me? And Jared and Jonathan, if you guys could get ready for time. My God, you are so faithful to see the full picture. And so your ways are not our ways, and we are thankful for that. We are challenged with a story like this where we want to be on Joseph's side, or we want to be on our brother's side. We want to take whoever's side, God. We're, we're challenged to... To want to play your role. But God, that role is set aside for you and you only. So when we feel like there are times when we are like Joseph and we feel punished or we feel persecuted. Father, may we trust in your leading. May we seek you that much more. May we pray for your gracious hand to be upon us to allow us to reject your sin and choose righteousness every single time. But to know that you are intimately involved. It's in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen.